Welcome to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on at our museum. Today, you're listening to me, Sarah Nixon, public programmer here at the St. Catharines Museum. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the Indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of Indigenous peoples who've walked on Turtle Island before us. When you think of play, what comes to mind? Perhaps you imagine scattered toys and games of all different shapes, colors, and materials, gym jungles, trampolines, and blanket forts, probably lots of chaos and noise as children jump, run, dance, scream, and laugh. Play and learning are often seen as contradictory. While play is viewed as free, unrestrictive, and expansively imaginative, learning is often viewed as structured. There is an order and purpose to it. Consequently, places of learning like schools and museums are also structured and, as a detriment, sometimes regarded as rigid and static. Places of learning can't also be places of play, can they? Museums have come a long way from our stuffy tradition with cases filled with objects and their accompanying labels and overbearingly cold rooms. When it comes to museum interpretation today, museums are emphasizing meaningful engagement, connection, sharing, and creating opportunities for participation and dialogue as we interpret history to our visitors, whether in person or online. And over the last few years, increasing literature has emerged around the values and opportunities of a play-based approach to learning for both children and adults. As a place of learning, museums can absolutely be places of play also. On this episode of Museum Chat Live, I've invited St. Catharines Museum Visitor Services Coordinator Adrian Petrie on to talk about the role and interpretive value of play in museums and to take a closer look at the inspiration and thinking behind some of the St. Catharines Museum's play-based programs. Welcome, Adrian. Okay, let's get right to it. We are coming to appreciate the value of play and its opportunity to foster creativity and imagination, challenge thinking and problem solving, utilize the senses, and strengthen communication. Just to name a few, of course. Play can be purely imaginative or through storytelling. It can be hands-on and incorporate movement or objects. It can be social or independent. What are your thoughts on integrating play into museum interpretation? Well, Sarah, thanks so much for having me on the podcast to start off with. It's nice to be a guest this time. Um, I'm not used to being a guest on the podcast. It's kind of neat. I have a whole bunch of thoughts on integrating play into the museum and into museum interpretation. So I guess I should start by saying that integrating play into interpretation isn't anything new. If you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to take us on a little journey back to my early days 
of heritage interpretation at Ontario Parks, where demonstrations and songs and games and challenges were all part of a successful program, and almost every program, but especially a children's program on the beach, where your competition is, you know, the family of ducks or a frog that will inevitably interrupt your program. In that kind of setting, uh, programs were really about keeping the participants engaged and having fun, as much as it was about helping them learn respect for the environment around them. But those two, while they, those two things sort of uh, having fun and then teaching them something, while they have different practical applications, uh, they were never separated. So we never played a game that didn't have an interpretive value or message associated with it. For example, a very favorite game of mine, one that I remember quite clearly playing, uh, was a version of, quote, what time is it, Mr. Wolf? Where uh, the wolf was actually played by uh, a female folktourist firefly. Uh, and if for those who don't know, female Fortura's fireflies sometimes mimic the flash patterns of the Photinus fireflies. And I'll, I'll reveal why in a second. But instead of sheep, all the participants in the field were the Photinus fireflies with a few different flash patterns so that you could only move and you can only move forward if the Photurus firefly or the wolf used your flash pattern and we used colored cards to represent the flash pattern. So only the orange people, the people with orange cards could move forward, you know, what the, the one, two, what time is it? Miss uh, Photurus. <laughs> one, two, three, four. And it's only the, you know, she would hold up the orange card and that would be the one that would, Photinus Fireflies that would move forward. I oh, that's, that brings anyway, me back to one so, of my favorite games as a kid. Oh, I love that. But I love how this like, game is like learning. Well, yeah, it's for sure learning because the whole point of it was that if you got close enough, the Photurus could run and eat you just like in real life. So the whole point of the game is that uh, to show, to demonstrate that female Photurus fireflies can mimic the flash pattern of uh, Photinus fireflies and trick them into coming close and then eating them. And also tricking kids into learning all about fireflies. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And like a lot of the times when we like i'm sure you've experienced this as well when we've tried some of these games that are really complicated uh with lots of rules and that kind of thing and like you have to pay attention sometimes they don't work if you know there's a ship pulling into the lock so like we got lucky pretty often that there weren't other distractions and that even though there were layers of rules to the game that the participants could figure it out so that was that was kind of like pretty lucky that it was successful because it totally could go the other way and the layers of rules could get too complicated for the play to not happen essentially so anyway speaking of a ship coming into the lock one of my favorite elements of the junior engineer program that we do is when we get the kids to choose their favorite mode of transportation or we pick one for the group and have them navigate between the program stops as that thing. So if they're if we're if we're all going to be ships, we're going to pretend to be a ship and move as a ship 
from you know out in out in the park to the viewing platform uh, or a car or a train or a plane or their choice and that physical movement and the pretend play even though it's only for two minutes uh, between stops really helps to set them up for learning about all the different types of transportation and the engineering processes involved in operating them for example you know planes can fly ships can't fly so if you're a plane I mean kids can't fly either but on their own but if you're a plane you're imagining yourself in the air with your arms outstretched and running around but if you're a ship there's limitations to what you can do compared to the plane so you're noticing these important differences and that's you know six-year-olds noticing these differences between the limitations that a ship has and the I guess the relative freedom that an airplane has and all of that it makes it a lot easier talking about how a ship goes through the canal it makes it so much easier because they're already engaged in the right world their minds are set up for through play their minds are set up for imagining what we're talking about already which is really really great so there's an added benefit there and and they were just a ship themselves so they're even more curious about how it actually works because obviously they're not a ship <laughs> so if <laughs> they can't carry cargo like a ship would but it helps them get into the right frame of mind for learning about how it actually works and then additionally on top of that they're far more likely to remember those moments of the program when they were a ship and then the information that goes along with that because fun and play have a much easier time being written into our memories I'm sure everyone can experience this isn't always true I mean people who experience traumatic events also you know remember have like really sort of what might be described as like negative memories about a, an event or something that's happened to them but um fun and play definitely have an easier time being written into memory than like me talking at someone <laughs> about how something works so when they leave uh leave us and go on into their lives they are probably and hopefully might be more likely to understand why and how a ship floats and works and that kind of thing and and you know what the benefits of ships are versus flying planes around and that kind of thing so it's this kind of play-based learning for me anyway that is a really good example of how important experiencing fun is to the formation of memories and making associate positive associations because of course our immediate goal like the goal that's right in front of us by the end of the hour or the end of 45 minutes or whatever is to teach kids about how the canal works for example but our overall goal is to help them form a positive association with the museum as a place that they can you know have fun and learn at the same time because oftentimes like the word learn if you say the word learn to a kid or to anyone it brings up an association that's like boring <laughs> it's not a it's not a enjoyable word most of the time most people associate the word learn with something that isn't fun so reframing those words would be would be a major goal for ours for us and for play-based experiences and then play also has been an important part of museum interpretation too not just you know for um children's programs or adult programs or sort of like personal interpretation style programs where you know there's an interpreter interacting with the visitor but in terms of 
you know, traditional museum didactic interpretation, like a traditional museum gallery or something like that. And and play's been an important part of museum settings like that, but play has generally, in my experience anyway, always been reserved for children and in an area that's dedicated to children's play. I don't know if you've had this experience, Sarah, or or the museums that you've been to, you've seen this, but generally, anyway, um, play is you know, reserved for children. And that usually separates um, separates us from the more, we, uh, oh, sorry, and it's usually more separate from the traditional and didactic museum gallery environment. So you have the interpretation that's happening, whether that's like a text panel or some sort of relay of information happens separately and away from the play. And the play is like in a specific designated area where the play happens um, and the play happens in a in an area that's usually like visually reserved for children, where the parents kind of <laughs> stand on the outside of the space uh, and don't participate in play. Uh, and you're weird if you're an adult <laughs> participating in play. But that's just um, it too. When you separate those galleries, it's very st- strictly determining who's allowed to enter and experience those spaces and as much as I'm drawn to the colors and shapes that these children's galleries usually have you know there's that part that's like wait this isn't for me I need to go to the adult section with the text exactly and even though that might not be the like some adults learn really well by reading some kids learn really well by reading but even if you know you're you're society is telling you that you're drawn to the you're supposed to go to the text panel because of how old you are essentially so and that and and that's okay if you're into that if you're into the reading the text panel that's great um we love you here because we <laughs> can't stop writing text and that's fine um but there's ways for us to bring play to all the experience for everybody now there are practical reasons that museums generally move play into a designated space because play can be noisy and not all visitors are hoping for that kind of museum experience, of course. If you're um, if you're more of a traditional museum user, you're probably coming to the museum thinking like, okay, I'm gonna have a quiet afternoon. I'm gonna read my text panels. I'm gonna sit. I might, you know, get something at the gift shop. You're not expecting boisterous play all around you. And like, granted, it can be difficult sometimes to read a text panel if there's lots of distraction. So. There are practical reasons for that, and I understand why it's been that way, and I actually have no problem as well with play areas, but we should also be trying to um, bring more play to that traditional space. And it doesn't have to be noisy play. It can be, there's lots of opportunities and lots of pathways for play that we can take, and we'll get into that a bit later, I think. So the, the challenge that we've undertaken here at the museum is really trying to figure out how to incorporate play or elements of play, discovery, curiosity into all of our interpretation and for all of for all audiences, not just children, and to make that part of the entire experience so that it's not like text panel, text panel, play, text panel, text panel, play. It's like I need to learn, I need to play to receive information for me to progress through the narrative. So like it's almost like something you got to do. <laughs> you have to play. <laughs> play is mandatory. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but in um, but additionally, like incorporating play into 
our museum experiences doesn't have to be a game of what time is it, Mr. Wolf? It doesn't have to be formal play like I just described. It doesn't have to be like structured play uh, in the museum galleries. It can definitely manifest itself into a lot of different ways. But most importantly of all, it's important to have fun. And, uh, you know, that fun, again, is connected to the ideas and the resources here that we interpret. We want people to take those messages away with them and one one way not we're not gonna put play into every single every single narrative and every single experience but one way of doing that is helping people make a connection uh through play that's play-based and play-based learning you know again shouldn't just be for the the sake of play we shouldn't just have something over there for play but uh it should also be a, a learning opportunity that's that uses the experience, the tactile, the the things that you mentioned, uh, tactile or and doesn't have to be hands on, but things that encourage curiosity, discovery, laughter, fun, that kind of stuff. Absolutely, because again, that's what visitors will take away with them after the fact. Maybe you know, a half an hour after they leave the museum, they might have all of that information in their heads. But a couple weeks or a couple months after they visit a museum, what will likely stay with them is the experience of fun and playfulness and joy and laughter that they that they had in those spaces. Definitely, it's a pretty basic thing, right? Like the the saying goes that people won't remember what you say or what you tell them, but they'll remember how they feel. And I think that's a, a key takeaway for all museums, inc- including ours, and even other spaces that aren't museums but are experience-based places, that people might not remember what you said or what they read, but they'll definitely remember how they feel mm-hmm. or felt when they were there. Mm-hmm. I'd like to uh, talk about play with a little bit more in terms of how adults might be able to experience play in museums. We, we talked a lot about how this differentiation between children and adults in museum spaces, but we know that it's really important for adults to use our imaginations and create and share as well. So what might be some ways that play in museums could look like for adults? Yeah, it's funny. I was just thinking about that now that like I wouldn't change any of the game rules for what time is it Miss Futuras (laughs) if adults were playing because it's pretty much like what would you why would you change it and in fact the only reason why I'm sure some adults didn't play was because of that sort of like societal trend where adults shouldn't encroach on the play space Um, and so like you know we set up the game as a thing for kids but if I had made a parent be Miss uh, Miss Forturis, <laughs> then maybe I could have grabbed some more parents to be Fortina's fireflies as well, and like that could have broken that barrier. So yeah, it's weird. It's a, it's a definitely a difficult societal trend that, that that play is reserved for children, and it's really tricky for us to overcome. But I think I think your question and and our discussion alludes to the idea that museums need to reframe what play means to interpretation, and especially for adult audiences, where play is no longer an inherent reaction for how we navigate spaces. I, as a kid, would have, like, maybe, you know, run around pretending to be a plane uh, through the space, even though planes really don't have anything to do with our site. Um, 
but as an adult, like there's like that societal expectation that you're not going to run around like a plane, um, and that you navigate spaces like, you know, without bothering anyone else. Essentially, like maybe it's that. Maybe for me anyway, maybe it's that thing is like I don't want to attract negative attention, and so like I put on those uh, societal expectations of like, okay, well I'm I'm going to. Uh, instead of like running through this space, just like you know, walk calmly, and so play kind of disappears from our natural reaction to a space. But anyway, play museums can come in a variety of experiences that encourage fun-based memory making for everybody. And while reading text is important, as we talked about for some visitors, generally most people want a bit more than reading. They're they're looking for and I am too, and I'm sure you are too, Sarah, that people are looking for a more dynamic experience. So a little bit of text, a little bit of play, a little bit of tech, maybe a little like lots of uh, graphics, maybe a discussion space, maybe some audio visual, that kind of thing, where those things mix together to tell the narrative. Um, and so like the most most rewarding museum experiences that I've had is where the narrative is spread out over a variety of mediums. I don't get the whole narrative in a text box and then get the same narrative again in play and then the same narrative again in an audiovisual experience. It's all like you have to you have to consume all the media to get the narrative and that's the that those are the most rewarding experiences and that's because for me play for adults is probably with, that's like doesn't require the casting off of societal boundaries that play is probably most easily accessible for adults if it's discovery based where they have to complete tasks or like move through a section to receive more information it doesn't require a lot of commitment it doesn't require any embarrassment maybe that's another thing we could talk about that <laughs> me as an adult <laughs> running through the galleries as a plane might be kind of embarrassing just because of those societal boundaries right so but play for adults really can just be as as experience based as it would be for kids it's just the application might look different for you know in real life play for adults can be experience based as i said it can be a game it can be like an individual game that you that the risk for embarrassment is fairly low it can be a play-based learning um experience that that's the vehicle for translating information as i mentioned discovery curiosity are really things that we can take advantage of uh and it, that could be like a, a simulation something that's experienced like a simulation simulation or a role-playing game again that might be more individual um where you, your risk factor of of embarrassment or playing the game is is a lot lower uh play can also be nostalgia based and and that way again you can ask adults to participate in a way that they haven't since they were children themselves and I think the the best example is one that just happened is like Sarah you naturally reacted to the nostalgia of playing what time is it Mr. Wolf um, and that would be another really great way of like if you present adults with things from their childhood it might sort of just like the kid within them might kind of like burst forward and just find joy which is really great totally goal cool. and while they were here, they learned the narrative. Another good example is when adults have to lead play experiences for the children who are with them, whether they're their own children or gaggle of kids that they've brought uh, to the museum. And our toy tour is a really good example of a situation in which adults kind of have to facilitate play for the children because the toy tours are designed 
to it's basically a bin of toys that are um, are flagged essentially for each for a stop 12 stops along the gallery so for example and they connect with what you're looking at so when the kids are at the steam pumper there's a toy fire truck to play with so it kind of helps them to compare what they might know today every every kid knows a fire truck to what the fire truck looked like 100 years ago and so it's it's really designed for children under 12 but usually requires because it's like a bin of toys you have to find the right number not all of them are super obvious there's a little bit of information that goes along with them we did that kind of on purpose because it requires the adult to facilitate the play and uh, they kind of have to get involved and work with and connect the kid with or the the children with um with the toys and what they're seeing in the gallery and so just like by association almost just by being there and doing that action the adults are engaging in a little bit of play as well and i've seen (laughs) i've come around the corner at the relief map and at the worker shanty in the gallery we put a construction outfit like a modern construction outfit in, that's a kid's one <laughs> in the bin and so that they can compare like some of the safety gear that we have today to the no safety gear that canal workers had in the past and you come around the corner and there's an adult wearing your kids uh, you know construction gear outfit <laughs> it's like how did you how, oh they made you put that on yeah see you're involved in the play now mm-hmm. and I mean that's a very specific like non-adult kid-centered way of play but it's still happening and so there's ways for us to get adults involved even if it's not um, even if it's not uh, you know like a, a child-based um, basic level of play essentially so if there's one thing that I could change about museums and about maybe society in the years because we're going to change society why not but if there's one thing that I can change about the the idea of museums and the idea that people think of as museum or a museum experience in the years to come is that it's and I think that the industry is moving this way as well is it's play isn't reserved for children and that adults benefit from play experiences too even if those play experiences aren't like childhood based play and I, I love that idea of integrating play into the gallery so that they're not separate spaces, that they can incorporate discovery-based or curiosity-based or nostalgia-based experiences for adults and kids to enjoy differently, but at the same time. So here at the St. Catharines Museum, we are starting to incorporate more and more play into our programming. You've already mentioned uh, the toy tour as one or junior engineers program as another. Um, And in the times before the pandemic, one of our most popular in-person children's programming was our build a boat challenge. Build a boat! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this this is when I get really nostalgic for the before times, yeah. right? Like, in this program, we would have... We're like, do you mean, like, a room packed with children going back and forth from the table where they built their um, built their boats to the pond where they floated exactly. their boats? Exactly. And, like, hours. Hours. <laughs> Kids work for hours testing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
Okay, you go ahead. I'll let you know. <laughs> but that, that was, that's it, right? We would have a, a room set up. There was a giant table where we would have different materials provided where kids could build a boat out of their own design. And sometimes this would be Lego. Other times this would be sponges, aluminum foil, popsicle sticks. All these materials would be out there and the kids would gather around the table and get creative to build any type of boat of their own design and then they would test to see if it would float so there would be this mini pool um, on the other side of the room where kids would line up and we would test put it in the water test if it could float and then the added challenge on seeing if it could carry cargo like the ships on the on the canal and we would slowly one by one put an, a little pebble on the ship until it would slowly sink and these programs were so popular like packed full of kids and and adults so there was the learning element of hey ships go on the welland canal they carry cargo hey there's a lot of engineering that goes into building these ships so that they can properly float and transport said cargo so there's that learning element and it was amazing to see these children be completely free to create and design their own boat however they choose so that's play-based learning in terms of trial and error uh, critical thinking uh, also lots of laughter <laughs> and it was great to see these children who've never met before this is a drop-in program and they would be comparing designs asking each other for tips this like un, like just giving out their tips whether they were solicited or not uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then i also loved that even though there was a slight competition in the the floating challenge these children were so supportive of one another uh, if their boat could float and how many uh, pieces of pebbles or rocks it could carry they'd be like oh my gosh you got 132 rocks congratulations that's amazing and i can't think of a time that like when the ship goes down anybody broke into tears the reaction when the ship goes down was to grab the ship and start over and like the determination mm -hmm. of them to you know win mm -hmm. was just fantastic mm -hmm. <laughs> even though it wasn't a competition <laughs> there was no competition but they were still so determined to make it work and i loved how they worked together and speaking of adult play one of my favorite parts of the program was seeing the parents <laughs> trying really hard not to like completely take over the the boat building but so also invested in their child ships so this again is just an example i wanted to bring up in the context of play-based learning but it also brings me to how we've thought about our programming since uh, the pandemic first hit and we knew that it was important to incorporate that same sense of play in our virtual programs quite early on so last spring we were quick to revamp our build a boat challenges for online so that parents could read that, that kind of program on our museum classroom lesson plan style blog posts, uh, take that lesson plan and then facilitate that build a boat activity at home. So we were quick to bring that those play-based learning activities online and also made us think about how to incorporate play into other virtual programming as we developed new programming. And one of those programs was our Lego challenge. And we recently just wrapped up the second series of 
the Lego challenge. So I would love, Adrian, if you could share what our Lego challenge is and how it is informed by play. The Lego challenge dates back centuries. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I don't think it's anyone surprised that Lego uh, surprised anyone that Lego was an, a very important part of my childhood and uh, was the main inspiration for my dream to be an architect. And Sarah, you can start the sad music here. While that dream was smashed by my high school math grades, oh. it's been, I know it's so sad, it's been exciting to rediscover the usefulness of Lego in our museum programming here. So the first time we used Lego in a program actually goes back further than build a boat. We built Lock 3 out of Lego for a March break program. That might be before your time, Sarah. I think it was actually. Oh my mm -hmm. goodness, yes. Mm -hmm. So what we did is, we for the March Break program, we encouraged the community to come and donate one brick of Lego each. That was a lot to ask. Asking people to give Lego away is impossible. And I don't recommend it in the future. But we did, over a week, build a model of a lock, thanks to one kid who just didn't want his Lego anymore for some reason, and gave us a bin. And that's the bin of Lego that we have now, so that's great. But some kids did come and give us one brick to contribute to this community lock building project. So that was really That's great. Beautiful. Really excited. Yeah. This was really exciting for the kids who donated the brick, of course, because then a part of them was a part of the project, which is really great. Additionally, they were able to see a much better 3D version of how it worked. Even though we have the great viewing platform, it's really hard to see the detail of how the lock works. Most of it's underwater anyway. So it was really nice that the kids could sort of discover the lock in a new way and then get in there and play with it, which is really great. So the the other thing is that what happened is that those that got right in there and played with the Lego lock reached some really impressive levels of curiosity. And I've never otherwise expected a six or a seven year old to ask me and to make the connection about the the real materials build to you used to build the real lock. So they're sitting there playing with Lego and they're like, hey, wait a second, what's the real thing built out of? Let's go look. That's pretty incredible. That is like everything you want from Lego. <laughs> As the years went on though, we continued to use Lego in our, in our support programs for exhibits uh, and an early beta version of the Lego challenge appeared on the March break uh, on March break of 2018 during our programs for the People and Places exhibit, which featured a lot of built heritage buildings in the exhibit. So for March break, we sort of started the Lego challenge, which was to build some of the places in the exhibit. And again, I was super impressed when, when an expert level father and son team built the old courthouse literally right in front of me in about 45 minutes. Um, and it was definitely a memory-making moment for me. I remember what those people looked like. I don't remember their names. If they're listings, hello. <laughs> um, but I hope that they remember that experience as well. And as I've mentioned, I've always been interested in design and I can remember a very, very early on paying attention to the architecture around me. Shapes, styles, colors of, let's say, manhole covers in the ground, on the road. Some are square. Some are like fully solid, some are grid, some are round, mm -hmm. some have the little bumps on them. You know, what are the holes in there for, for like the crowbar? How heavy does it weigh? <laughs> to the architecture of buildings, like where did they get the stone from? Mm -hmm. Where, how, like who made the concrete? Who came up with concrete? I wonder how concrete's made, you know, so, and so on. 
So Lego and architecture clearly provides some comfort to me because I'm so interested in design and uh, in the world around us. And so I think it was a natural fit for longing, uh, launching the first Lego challenge as a virtual program last year. You know, we all needed something comforting, essentially. And I think that the Lego challenge turned out to be a really engaging, fun, and literally hands-on way of helping people connect with maybe their nostalgia for adults, maybe for actual kids who are playing with their actual Lego in the moment. And they're like, you know what, I'm going to disassemble this thing that I'm playing with right now and I'm going to build the public way scales that Adrian is building because this seems really cool. So it's a really great way for people to connect with the build heritage around us, some of which is still there, some of which has disappeared from the streetscapes. And I think a lot of people maybe underestimate the impact that the built environment has on our daily lives. So getting folks, especially children, to take notice of those things, maybe they didn't get into the weeds as much of like, hmm, that one particular stone has a divot in it. I wonder who did that, uh, which is my experience with buildings. But my mission really was to get people to take notice of the things around them because of how much the built environment has an impact on our daily lives. Lego also provides a really tactile muscle memory type of learning experience. And for anybody who participated in the Lego challenge or just builds Lego generally, it's an escape. You don't think about anything else while you're playing with Lego. You think about playing with Lego. You think about what you're building. And that's the joy. That's some of the joy of it. You also learn a lot about your own decision-making process uh, your organization skills, your own patience, especially if you have loose Lego and it just collapse, collapses all the time. And you also learn about your own inferencing. And you, like when you're building these things, you kind of have to vision it. You have to see, you have to kind of figure out what the steps ahead are going to be so that like when you join two, two ends of a bridge together, the bridge works properly. Like it makes sense and works. So, you know, like if you're going to build the left, uh, the east or the south or the north side of the bridge deck out of that's it's going to be five bricks wide, then the other side that you also build first before you build the middle also has to be five. Like those are the decisions that you have mm -hmm. to make. Do you have enough Lego? It's all this kind of crazy stuff that goes into um, participating in the Lego challenge. It also makes the intangible ideas, especially I want to say for the built heritage buildings that aren't a part of our landscape or our streetscapes anymore way more tangible, accessible, and immediate. Suddenly the old courthouse isn't just, you know, that old building that's part of the streetscape downtown. Suddenly the courthouse is in your living room, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's like, it's right in front of you. You can't, you can't just like, you know, ignore it as part of the streetscape. Like if you're traveling in a car, Famously, cars like take some of that street side experience away from us. If you're in a car, you just and it's a green light, you're zipping by the courthouse. You might not even see it if you're on the wrong side of the car. And so now the courthouse is like in your living room, and it's 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 just incredibly immediate. Another component of the Lego challenge that I didn't expect. I kind of knew everything so far because, you know, I do. I, I, I am a programmer, so like I kind of set some goals and, and expect some things. But one thing I didn't expect was the attention to detail that I paid to the projects, to the builds, and the quote impressive results. That's somebody else's words. <laughs> but like I didn't set out. The point is I didn't set out to be the Lego guy. 
But what I did feel was that the Lego challenge wouldn't be good and it wouldn't be fun if I didn't try my absolute best to replicate the buildings to the best of my ability. So I get that what I built is definitely intimidating to people who don't usually play with Lego. But I think that people who do play with Lego got a lot out of it because they know what that's like. They know what it's like to build something and and they know what the feeling is like of building something like that. So, you know, even if people didn't have Lego to participate with, I think they kind of vicariously experienced a lot of that fun, which is makes me feel better about some of the more frustrating parts of building the bridges, including the collapses. So anyway, when it came to this year's challenge, I thought building the city's iconic bridges would be a bit simpler than some of the really ornate um, builds that we had last year. The courthouse, the uh, Knox Presbyterian Church were really um, detail-oriented uh, builds. Uh, but then still a good challenge and a vehicle for some engineering lessons. And like, and additionally, sorry, I know we talked about something like something that would catch people's eye on social media, <laughs> because of course, like, you know, the builds that we build have to be bigger ish than what might be expected so that they are capturable for a social media audience. Essentially, if I built something really small, it wouldn't have the same mm -hmm. impact. So building big is, is, is a benefit for, for everyone really. So at this point, I think it's pretty clear that my brain must build as accurately as possible, even though I was thinking, well, like, oh, I'll just build like, I'll just build the Henley Bridge. It won't be a big deal. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, but then like, I'm not capable of just saying it's not a big deal. <laughs> uh, my brain must build as accurately as possible. And uh, so speaking of noticing design, I started to see these structures in a completely new light. And that's a big deal for me because I had already noticed the arches of the Henley Bridge. I already count, <laughs> this is embarrassing, I already count all the pylons of the Skyway on my way to work every day. I already noticed these things and then as we went out to film them for the videos and as I built them out of Lego, I started to, to notice new design things. So I can only imagine what kind of explosions were happening in people's minds as they built or as they watched. Uh, these structures come to life in Lego. It's it's true. A lot of people who have reached out say the same thing. They say that regardless of the skills that they have or that I have, it's way better to see these structures or buildings in a new light than going through life not even noticing the built environment around us. And I've heard I've heard from so many people that they love the Lego challenge, even if they again, even if they didn't build it themselves. We heard from a couple of people who said, "We'd love to participate, but our Lego is tied up in other projects." <laughs> and I was like, "That is me. I would never dismantle, you know, something I was building already just to participate in some crazy museum guy's <laughs> Lego challenge." <laughs> Maybe later, museum guy. Like, don't tell me what to do with my Lego. But anyway. Because, you know, they could, even if they couldn't build, they could almost join in with me as I built. I think a lot of adults probably had that, that feeling, like nobody has time these days, especially with like most of everybody during the Lego challenge was at home, online learning and working from home, that kind of thing. So nobody has time to, to really play. And like the weather was turning nice so that free time was definitely spent outside. But that wasn't the goal. The goal was of the Lego challenge was really connecting people with the design and architecture of these important and historical structures. And then most importantly, the value of those heritage resources um, is, is really important for us to connect them to uh, 
And I think that was definitely achieved because, again, the feedback almost always included some reaction of the appreciation of the history of the building or the bridge. And that's the dream, Lego or not. I love that so much. And I, I definitely agree. I think the, the hope here is, you know, the next time someone drove past or drove on Glendale Bridge, for example, they're noticing the counterweights, thinking about your Lego bridge where you actually built the counterweights out of Lego, which to me was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and to me, it was a total surprise because I was like, I'm going to do this. It wasn't a surprise that I was going to do it. It was a total surprise that it worked. <laughs> But this is a great example of how, you know, you're using play to connect people who might otherwise scroll past our post. If it was just a picture of a bridge, someone might just scroll past it on Instagram or Facebook and say, oh, that's cool, but whatever. But to make something out of Lego and to show that video, you're sparking a sense of curiosity, a sense of playfulness, a sense of maybe they loved Lego as a kid, but they stopped playing as an adult, but they still say, wow, that is so cool. Childhood me would have loved to make this. And that's enough. That's all we want is just to spark some sense of curiosity uh, that gets them thinking in a new way. So let's think a little bit then about post-pandemic future in museums. (laughs) A little bit. Think a little bit. (laughs) Try. (laughs) It's all we think about. (laughs) It's all we think about. What will museums look like in the post-pandemic future? I'd love to get your thoughts on how we can continue to incorporate play into museum interpretation going forward. Yeah. As we discussed in the previous podcast episode, in our conversation with Meredith and Kathleen, generally the in-person experiences, play-based or otherwise at museums, are a bit up in the air until the current pandemic situation is sorted out. But I think that... uh, our audiences are still going to be, even after the pandemic, I hope anyway, that um, audiences are still going to be coming to the museum for the same reason, whether the play or in-person experience is different. And that's for you know things like leisure, recreation, um, connection with their community, and for you know an enjoyable afternoon, right? People are people come to us when they're on their free time, so. We have to give them an experience that values their recreation time, their leisure time. And that usually, not usually, always must involve an enjoyable experience. So regardless of what it turns out to be, whether we can you know, have hands-on play again um, in the short term or the long term, an enjoyable experience is what we need to strive for. And I think there's there's a ton of play-based learning strategies that museum can museums can incorporate into their interpretation, again, whether in person or physically distance. Not everything, not everything has to be hands-on. Not all play has to be structured. Not all play has to be toy-based. Not everything has to be hands-on. So the requirement for play really is about the willingness and the openness of the participant uh, to join in the play. It's less about what kind of um, stuff is available and more about the experience that we provide, the opportunity for joy making, essentially, that we provide. So while it's sometimes a challenge with specific narratives to figure out how to incorporate play into the interpretation, for example, like specific narratives are specific difficult narratives like slavery, the, the history of slavery in Canada, 
or maybe more difficult um, narratives like the experience of trench warfare for St. Catherine's soldiers in the First and Second World Wars, that kind of thing. Like those, those narratives are more difficult to incorporate play into the interpretation. It's not impossible, but it's uh, difficult. Um, we should always be working towards inspiring our visitors to have a play mindset. So even if there's a narrative that we don't think it's appropriate, that we and or we want someone to feel a, a different way about a narrative, we can always inspire our visitors to have to be more open to different types of experiences. And as interpreters, one of our many, 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 many jobs is to facilitate experiences. And after the months and months we've collectively experienced that haven't been so great, uh, we're all looking for enjoyable, relaxing, fun, and meaningful experiences. So if we can create a facility-wide experience that encourages those feelings for visitors, then we're definitely on the right track, even if we have literal defined you know, inside the box play, or just sort of a, a playful, joyful atmosphere. One of, the one of the ways that we can do that without specific hands-on activities is encouraging visitors to reframe their experience and their expectations of museums uh, from their general museum experiences while they're here. I often say to visitors to please enjoy your visit. And that's usually how I leave a conversation. I usually, you know, if somebody's like, where's the bathrooms? Or then I'm like, okay, bathroom's over there. Enjoy your visit. <laughs> to, to let them know that like it's okay to enjoy yourself while you're here. Um, so without introducing a whole bunch of touch points that we have to clean and that kind of thing, uh, we can just encourage our visitors to navigate the museum spaces and to take in the narratives in a more playful way. That could be asking kids to navigate the space as a slow-moving ship in the canal, which has the added, added benefit of discouraging running, which isn't safe. Uh, inside anyway. Um, running is fun outside. Yay. Uh, or we can let, you know, worried parents who are worried about everything from like, where am I going to sit down? Where are we going to have our picnic to, you know, how am I going to get these five toddlers to social distance? You know, let them know that it's fine that the kids can play and make noise. It's not a big deal if kids make noise. It's okay. Um, and that takes a lot of stress off parents so that they're able to enter into the the more joy level of experience and then we can also encourage varied discovery uh, of the galleries for all audiences by encouraging visitors to maybe let's say just like uh, just you know brainstorming that we could have them pick a favorite artifact and report back to us after their visit so that they're going through the gallery with a different mindset they're like okay well i have to sort of play a game with myself to pick my favorite artifact. So I gotta, I, I gotta learn as much as I can and then figure out which one I like best. And then they can report back or they can post it on social media and, and that kind of thing. You can play tons of different types of games on just with your family or with your group on the viewing platform. Like um, you, you could play I Spy on the viewing platform to make the experience of watching a ship a little bit more play-based. So I Spy is something that's really tall and yellow well, it's probably a resting arm because it's the tallest thing at the lock. Um, and so now that like people have a, a task, people have an engagement strategy, and people are engaged in play as a part of how they're navigating the space and consuming our narratives. I think sometimes we think of like these interactives and play things that have to be rocket science, that we have to like throw the best, most expensive toys or complicated 
fancy gadgets and technologies or apps and iPads at people for people to have any sense of play. But play has to be experienced. Um, it has to be, it doesn't matter how it's presented. It has to be experienced. It has to be fun. And, you know, there's a lot of value in just basic strategies for navigating spaces and experiencing play around you. And I think the important thing that is a part of that is that I can't experience play for you. Even though you might have enjoyed watching me build bridges in the Lego challenge, it's not the same, and it was fun, it's not the same as you building them yourself. So regardless if it's tactile play like Lego or build a boat, or if it's movement-based play like it's pretending to be a ship or a plane, some stuff just has to be experienced to take hold in our memories and to grow a sense of appreciation. For museums, moving forward in the months and years to come, play can simply be about reframing the experiences that we want visitors to have while they're here and the experiences that they'll take away with them until their next visit. Thank you so much, Adrian, for coming on the podcast today and sharing all of this great insight into play in museums. We really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I hope everyone also sees the irony in how seriously we take play. We don't, we do, but we don't. And so I hope everyone listening finds a time today or this week to play a little bit. That's it for this episode of Museum Chat Live. A big thank you to our Visitor Services Coordinator, Adrian Petrie, for coming on to talk about play and museums. I had so much fun with our conversation. And now for our listeners, we would love to hear from you and to learn if you've had any playful experiences in museums and what you think of a play-based approach to learning in a museum setting connect with us on social media, St. Catherine's Museum on Facebook, and at STC Museum on Twitter and Instagram. You can also leave your comments on our blog at stcatherinesmuseumblog.com. Make sure to also subscribe to our Museum Chat Live and the museum's other podcast, One Hour in the Past, on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre and the City of St. Catharines. <laughs>